and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, for this episode, we have two co-hosts. Yes, my friend Hunter Sagona dressed as a ghost for Halloween. I know this coming out in January, and I know a lot of people are going to be confused. But my name also is Sean Rukunis, and many people have a playlist that makes our life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon a musical knowledge and with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, dot, 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 and as my friend Hunter always says, and everything in between. The Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor, um, Opus 67 by Beethoven, also known as the Fate Symphony in German. Let me do my best German here to botch it up. Schicksal uh, Symphony uh, is a symphony composed by Ludwig von Beethoven between 1804 and 1808. It is one of the best-known compositions of classical music and one of the most frequently played symphonies and is widely considered one of the cornerstones of Western music. Uh, first performed in Vienna's uh, Theater an der Wein uh, in 1808, the work achieved its prodigious reputation soon afterward. Um, E.T.A. Hoffman describes the symphony as, quote, one of the most important works of the time, end quote. Um, as it is typical of symphonies during the classical period, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has four movements. It begins with a distinctive four-note, short, 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 long motif, often characterized as fate knocking at the door, the Schicksalsmotiv, nice. which is Hunter, fate I'm, motif in my best I'm, German. Hunter, I'm surprised you didn't go fate knocking at the door. Knocks at the door. Oh, perfect. That's it. That's it. And the symphony and the four-note opening motif in particular are known worldwide, just like the Jaws theme or Superman, with the motif appearing frequently in pop culture, from disco versions to rock and roll covers to uses in film and television, like Beethoven's Eroica and Pastoral, which we'll actually talk about next, is symphony number five was given the explicit name besides the numbering, though not by Beethoven himself. Now written in 1808, and as we always say, off we go. All right, and we're back, and we're talking about Beethoven 5 today, and especially we're going to start with the first movement called Allegro Crombrio, and we are in the key of our Lord and Savior, C minor. <laughs> and we're so excited to talk about this today because, Hunter, you eloquently talked about the relationship that this piece has to, like, various forms of media, as in television mm -hmm. and movies. Um, I wanted to talk to you quickly about this movement in that same capacity. And now the police are after you. Yes, um, they are. So I wanted to first ask you, before you get arrested today, I wanted <laughs> to ask you about what this piece means to those social and sort of medial, like, like atmosphere. Like, wh what does it mean to put something like this in a television show or a movie? What do you think that adds to that? Is it a comedic effect? Is it a... Because I think, I think that's what that is. I mean, a lot of shows that I really like, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, loses a lot of the Bizet, especially mm -hmm. Carmen. And I think what's so interesting about that is I think they take the boring and the mundane and they put it to classical music. And I think it's kind of funny where like it's like a mm -hmm. simple problem and it's kind of frustrating, but yet it still kind of has this comedic styling of like, 
oh, it's so high and mighty, but yet it's so lowly in that it, it still finds its humor in that way. So I want to toss mm-hmm. it maybe over to you. What do you think? Well, you know, it's funny because my one of my first notes about the about the piece is like, mm-hmm. could Beethoven have known at the time? I mean, obviously, probably not. But like when he wrote the the symphony, particularly the opening, did he realize it was going to be the one of the most played snippets of music of all time? You know, so I'm sure obviously he had no idea because he didn't know what was coming. But point being is that um, I think when you have something like that, you know, it's so iconic that even if you use it with a humorous intention, the work has such gravitas behind it. The work has such inherent emotion connected to it that I think it sort of lends credibility to whatever you're giving it to. Like um, a lot of these famous classical pieces that we've, we've talked about, or even, and even ones we haven't talked about on this pod, mm. um, have been used in primarily in like cartoons, right? I mean, there was, you know, particularly the um, Warner Brothers um, Looney Tunes and then, um, you know, Hanna-Barbera had Tom and Jerry. And a lot of them use these really popular classical tunes that were well-known by pretty much everybody, um, which is why they were used. But I think there was also a sense of like, well, we need to find a way to introduce these these to the next audience of people. So, you know, we put them in, you know, and, and and we keep them alive through this media that will endure for for a long time. But I do think that, of course, depending on how you use it, of course, it's it's you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There is a there is a comedy to it. I mean, obviously, if you know a cartoon character throws a door open and you hear, bum, 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 you know, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, I mean, it's been used in serious moments in media too, where, you know, um, I mean, I'm trying to, I, I can't think of this particular symphony off the top of my head, but in, like a lot of dramatic movies, they use classical pieces, not because the, the song is overused, but because the song or the, the, the work does carry with it unknown emotion like the dun 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 is known to be suspenseful it's known to be intense so when you play that in something people know that's what you're trying to emo- uh, trying to get out of the audience that particularly that particular emotion i mean wagner's um die valkyrie mm. i mean obviously you can play that to be very like far-fetched and, and comedic but it does carry with it this very heavy and powerful motive that the audience recognizes yeah, you know I think I mean? you're talking about maybe Apocalypse Now, right? Right, yeah, they, so they use, yeah. they use it in that. Yeah, I think that's, so, that's a powerful thing. Yeah, so and then, then oppositely, of course, there are ones that are known to be um, comedic or maybe even um, not dramatic, but like romantic. Like, you know, the Romeo and Juliet overture by um, Tchaikovsky. That one clip from it is used, you know, particularly in cartoons, it's always the love theme. And it's often in shows when they want to be funny because it's so like overly gushy, so romantic, but that's how it's become known. Um, And in that way, it could could be funny, but it wasn't originally intended that way. It's just sort of how we came to, how we've come to know it. But like you mentioned, you know, Bizet, you know, if you throw the the abanera into something and it's supposed to be like, you know, the sultry woman dancing to get their attention, you know, again, it could be played comedically, of course. 
Yeah, I think so, so too. And I, long-winded I answer for your question. Right, no, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that then also leads to, I'm sure you've heard a node, make it a node to Beethoven. Have you heard um, that really great? Oh, yeah. And so, like, I think that's something that I also talked about in, in a class dedicated to Beethoven where... That is, isn't it funny that the most popular melody of the classic literature is based on a minor third? Like, what does that say about our society as as people? And also, that's very specific. Like, that you know what I mean. I, I like, doubt anyone would know that. Right. You know what I mean. Like, it has this, like, it has this fall to it. But but what what's interesting about it too? It's actually not a minor third. It's actually a major third. I I made that up because. Initially, it's a it's a minor third because it goes from G to E flat, pa 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 pa, and then the, the mm. next one's a minor, pa 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 pa. Yeah, pa 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 pa. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's interesting, but I think I digress. But so I think what's interesting for me, Hunter, is the role that beethoven has with the clarinet especially in the beginning of this song oh yeah definitely and maybe you can talk about this a little bit too which is the relationship that he has with the the boisterous nature and the 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 sort of like the mature nature as well in the symphony so he has the outbursts of fate versus the sort of like what does that mean to like like what kind of sound do you expect the clarinet to make at that time like the clarinet is now being used in two different contexts right um i think that the um you know the way you said it it, it is intended as a contrast right the the rest of the orchestra has this very large imposing um minor sounding you know, sound and the clarinet comes in and it has this this it's a simple melody but it does provide that necessary contrast. It's this moving, you know, quarter note line that sort of is briefly thrown in there. And, you know, it's like a tantrum, right? I always see it as like, you know, fate is railing, railing, railing. And then mm. almost like its parent is saying like, calm down, calm down, calm down. Tantrum, 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 tantrum. Calm down, calm down. You know, it's like the the adult versus the, the child trying to get its way almost kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And we're also talking about the same thing. We're also talking about the blindness of one. Sorry. I, I Literally, I thought about it for so hard. And I was like, I'm not going to mess this up. No, I, I just did. I mean, the deafness of the deafness. Of because right. this is something that overcomes him as, as a person. Right. So yeah. I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think that this deafness meant to the obvious fate knocking at the door? Well, so in that case, right. I mean, it's, it's, literally like fate bearing down on him right the knocking is like hi you're losing you know you're getting old you're losing your hearing um yeah. i mean he wasn't that old but he just happened to, he had tinnitus um mm, right and it's like you can't escape it right it's it's overwhelming much as the sound is in this and yet i find in that context the clarinet is very much like the piece that he might get from writing right the piece he might get from composing his works um that he has to take solace in while this overwhelming sound or lack thereof in his case um is sort of pounding at him would you find that overlapping solace being the the b section the buddy 
the well i mean yes but i specifically am talking like the the moving the um, not the moving the the clarinet part get that gets inserted in between sorry i was having a stroke as i was saying it um <laughs> the clarinet part that gets thrown in in between but yes the b section is very much the um what i find to be the um reflection of maybe that that solace and i think there is something to be said for the fact that like you know i didn't i we didn't know him we didn't know what was going on in his head but maybe he did try to find some peace in the silence you know what i mean mm-hmm. he obviously could hear music you know he had heard it we know he he had a concept of it in his head so maybe he enjoyed i wouldn't say he enjoyed it it frustrated him but maybe he tried to find a you know a, a bright side right, right to it like okay i can concentrate only on the music right maybe he, that's how he composed some of his great works as he was going because Yes, the tinnitus is a ringing and that can be maddening, but your brain has a way of filtering that out after a while because it almost acts as white noise. So maybe he did find some sort of um, peace in it. I think there is too. I think that's something that we come to understand as the symphony moves along. And it's something that we decide that possibly he's going to triumph over because of the difficulty that he has because of that. Or does he just kind of, like you said, does he just move on with his life? I mean, it's something that happens to him. He just can't stop composing because that's not who he is as a person because he's just right. very good at it, you know? And and yet he probably still knows where C is. And yeah, I love that conversation. Maybe, have you ever seen Mr. Holland's opus before? Yeah. Yeah, that moment where where that where he's kind of listening to Beethoven, it's kind of sinking in, he's realizing that his son will probably never hear music in his life. Mm-hmm. And that to me, it's, it's so heartbreaking. And yet he still has to say, oh, Beethoven was never born deaf. Beethoven heard what these notes sounded like and they came to him and he was still able to create something wonderful and magnificent and glorious. And again, I think of this movement and so many historians and even as you mentioned, E.T.A. Hoffman, this is the premier piece. Yes, is it? it it's extremely classical, has ranges of romanticism in it right and we can go on and we can say okay he's done x y and z where i i think for me extremely uh when people say this is a classical piece of music i cringe because you know me i i feel like we need to elaborate why we think this is classical music because i think there is an element of classical music like when we say mozart or we talk about haydn there's a there's a remote level of emotion that goes into their music, right? Right. However, unfortunately for later Mozart, I think Mozart starts to understand what early romanticism is kind of about. And not saying that that Haydn did either, but I feel like Mozart and Beethoven were a little, little closer to their emotions and really kind of played yeah. through that. And I think broke the laws of physics while doing that. And I think that this movement for me is really kind of really about how Beethoven expresses anger and stuff like that. Especially like, I think we talked about that story where when Beethoven heard about Napoleon and and when we talked about Beethoven three, how like he heard that he was ruling all over like and taking people's lives and stuff like that. He then immediately threw out the third symphony. Luckily, thank God someone saved it. And, and then they ended up playing it. Mm -hmm. But, but I think, What's so interestingly about Beethoven at this time was that he's dealing with all this tumultuous nature. Like he's dealing with, 
X, Y, and Z, you know? And, and still, I feel like there's this, there's like this weight on him. That's like, I'm still this gifted of a person. I'm still able to contribute how much I am to contribute. And so he certainly wasn't a humble person. He was definitely (laughs) not a humble person and definitely not a humble bragger at all. But what I find to be interesting too, and we talked about this, which is this is honestly, and we talked about this maybe a little bit with Beethoven for, but Beethoven is finally getting his footing. Mm-hmm. And we say this with all the composers, right? We talked about this with John Williams. We talked about this with Hasashi. We talked about this with so many people. It takes forever for someone to get good at something, right? And so when yep. we're finally good at something, we finally notice and we say, oh my goodness, this work, this piece, not Beethoven one, not like we talk about Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky really didn't get it right until possibly four, maybe five, right? And we talked about this forever. Like these pieces don't get noticed until they are really seen or simplified into some original compositional idea. And mm-hmm. I feel like at the time, this was huge for Beethoven, especially for music everywhere because it's exploding and it's different. And of course, now I want to talk about time signature because... Mm-hmm what the i feel like this is such a big topic because people go oh this piece is in three or no this piece is in four no this piece is in one and i, and I think <laughs> maybe you can have this discussion too with me which is um there's so many conductors that do this and i know this is a podcast so no one can actually see what i'm doing but it's like you're it's like you're you're riding, riding a, a horse riding thank you <laughs> two brains think alike so what right. i was thinking like there there is this level of of this but really it's this tumultuous feeling. There's really no feeling to it. And I think it's really good that it's in one because as in one, there's this turbulent nature of, of this moving. Right. And I think that that is part about getting it kind of moving. And um, I'm not sure. If I mean, it should be specified to... that it's actually written in two, four, it's written in two, four, but it's, it's really is conducted in one. Right. And I'm just saying to clarify for the listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because I can definitely go off tangents and go forever. So I wanted to ask you, what does that time signature bring to the first movement? Well, I mean, two, four, four, four. I mean, if we're looking specifically at the numbers that are on the page in this case, I mean, I know you said it's conducted in one, but um, there, you know, any, any sort of simple meter versus compound simple is always, I think, going to provide more of a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's going to provide more of a, uh, not segmented, what's the word? The, the, the beat is so much more easily divisible in a simple meter mm. to feel. You know what I mean? A lot of people yeah. have a hard time feeling compound meter. And so I think it's a lot easier. It shows more structure. It provides more uh, rigidity yeah. when something is in um, simple, whether it's 2-4, four, 4-4. Four, four, um, whether it's, uh, you know, like, well, not 12, eight, that's a, that's compound, but point being is, um, I think that being conducted in one is what allows for the flexibility, but the actual way it's written, it's, it's, I meant said the word before the rigidity of it, I think also helps to show his anger because when something is sort of all over the place and, 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 you know, you're, mm. you're playing with the tempos, it's hard to really sometimes get a specific emotion, particularly anger or frustration. Um, but when something is so rigid, you can almost feel like you, you know, you could almost see him conducting it. You know what I mean? You could feel the dun, 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 you know, it has this more of a, 
you 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 keep they can't see it but you keep doing this like carriage ride motion um mm. you'd feel yourself come back down on the seat every time the horse gallops it 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 provides you with some sort of context absolutely you know what i mean i should think that's it it, it was the right yeah. choice clearly um yeah. for it to be in that yeah i want to ask you what words come to mind when you think about this movement what words come to mind um i mean the first thing that this is like a weird thing. Sometimes I think in color, and like I don't. I have no idea as to why. That's um, synthesia. You have synthesia. Yeah, yeah, synesthesia. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, sorry. There you go. Uh, I think that's how you say it, synesthesia. Yeah, I um, think you're right. And like for some reason, I always get the color maroon. It's really mm. specific, but <laughs> um, yeah. maroon comes to mind. So it's like you know, maroon has that quality of red to it. That like the the, the anger portion of it. But then, oh, okay. you know, maroon is also a darker shade, right? It's a little more um, almost like frustration rather than a temper tantrum. Even though we mentioned mm -hmm. temper tantrum earlier, mm -hmm. I always get the sense of like it's a, it's a prolonged frustration. He's trying to get those feelings out after a long time. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what comes to my mind. Um, so having said that, then frustration is obviously a word that comes to mind because okay. it's the, the primary emotion, I think, that went into a lot of this particular work. Yeah. Where does that frustration go to? Because we talk about the development of the second movement and the second, sorry, sorry. Second theme. I'm sorry. Well, I think that, you know, the, are we referring to the oboe adagio? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, after any sort of, t um, any sort of raging, right? Eventually you get tired. Mm. And I think that's the, what that is. I think that's like the, okay, I've gotten it all out. I'm calm now. I'm collected. But then of course it comes back later on. Um, yeah. Much yeah. like your, uh, yeah. your tale from earlier about your, your boss. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, oh look, my students are submitting assignments. Isn't that nice that this mm. time of night? Um, that was total distraction. So point being that that would make me frustrated. Um, so point being is I think that's what that B section is really maintaining is like you bring in a different instrument that, you know, is not the, like the rest of the others. Even It's even different than the clarinet. So it provides a totally new tone um, and something that's usually associated. I think we talked about this maybe, was it last time or the time before that where we talked about the oboe often symbolizes like nostalgia or peace. Yeah. So... Yeah. You know, the clarinet can do that too, but if you're using the clarinet in a in the previous movement and you want to separate it, well, you got to bring in a new instrument now, which in this case is the oboe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so funny too. And I was just going to say, I feel like we talk about timbre a lot. Oh, it's an important Espe piece of the important piece of the process. I think it is too, and I think that Beethoven nails nails it right in the head when we talk about. The, the variety of different kinds of sounds we listen for when we listen to orchestra. Um, I feel like I've been in that, in that cycle before. Um, and when you listen to something like that and you listen to the little cadenza that the oboe has and the, and then the and then the rage just comes back and what mm -hmm. the words and, and for me the words that come back to this work for me magnitude structure collapsing um, 
I think that there's a lot of emotional turmoil in this piece. And again, I get so angry because Beethoven's like, I did not draw from real life. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. Wink, wink. We know Beethoven. We know because you've said that before. So what I think is so interesting about that is that there's this level of, um, it just, it just, it's ever so creeping. And yet we say, oh, this isn't based off of anything in his life at this time. Come on. Mm-hmm. Come off of it. You know, but I think it's so interesting because we're also really at the turn of the century too, right? This is yep. something that's different for Beethoven. He's living something new. And I think that's, it's kind of a big part of his life. He's, I think he's almost in his thirties or forties or even fifties at this point, because we're really kind of thinking about. I just totally picked a, a bunch of different ages of what Beethoven. I was just going to say, we're going to go through three decades, 30 years three, worth of life. That's okay. Three, so we're going to figure that out later. But what I find so interesting about this was like Beethoven's maturity level is still not there, but he uses the music to build in his maturity. So like the music is his therapy in a way. Mm-hmm. He's able to put down how he feels on this page and really explain it to the audience without even having to say it. That is absolute power at its max and i think that's an it's an amazing thing without having to to rule or dictate people and i think that's such an amazing thing to say like we don't have to i can show you something without even having to tell you what it is and you'll know exactly what i'm saying and that is such a beautiful sentiment to this first movement because for those who might believe that this is my the first movement my favorite the second movement is actually my favorite of this of this entire symphony Hunter, I'm not sure how you feel. Is the first for your, is your favorite? You know, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I do really enjoy it, but I don't think it's my favorite. And I want to say it could very well be the second, but I got to say, and I know it's probably an unpopular opinion, but I do really like the third. Not all Mm. of the third, but I do like the third. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. And I think that's such an interesting thing too, because again, it's very... Um, choreographed and and it's in its and its structure and its timbre and, and the way that um, he writes for the orchestra. So I want to go to the second movement, and the second movement is in the key of A flat major, entitled Andante con moto. Um, uh-huh. Words for me that come to mind for this movement, Hunter, is peace, because yeah. we need we need something relaxing prior to that first movement, um, and it almost feels Post like that first movement. Too. So <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so what I find so interesting about this movement is for me, in a way, I think about this symphony as stages of grief. He has that upset. Stages. Moment. Okay. That makes sense. Stages of grief. He has, he comes to accept it. The third movement is questioning. And fourth is, is him building upon that grief in a way that's, that's, that's plausible. So I want to start with, with this first question for you. This for me was my favorite movement. Because mm-hmm. it's it's ever so developing, and and yet he does such a great. No one talks about his second movements enough. I mean, except for maybe the one in seven, because the seventh one is the most famous. But this one, it's 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 just it's it's so wonderful, and and, and I feel like. I mean, like, I, I bet there are bazillions of papers on this movement. But for me, mm-hmm. Beethoven writes the best second movements because he understands that the second movement is used for variations and development. And that is such an, a powerful way to write. You can write something simple and then add something to it or make it in a minor key 
or do something different. And I think that's such a cool thing to do. And I will stop talking. So I'll toss it over to you. What are some words? What are some buzzwords? What are some phrases that you thought of when you first heard this movement? Because I, you just told me that this was one you haven't heard before. So I'm curious what you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I had I had heard part of like the randomly, it was like the middle of the piece because I like I recognized it. But first thing that popped to mind was the name of the movement is Andante con Moto, mm. which is obviously, you know, it's walking pace with motion. So immediately, as I often point out, you know, they want, you know, you want to increase the amount of motion or at least the amount of felt motion to the piece. So what do you do? Well, you take it out of compound and you put, or you take it out of simple and put it into compound meter. Mm. So as I've talked about many numerous times, any sort of compound meter I have always found does seem to give the illusion of increased motion. There's something about that that triple divided beat that all, it makes us lean into it. It makes us sort of go through this the circular motion that often comes with conducting in in the three um, or in in a compound meter. Um, and I think that that's sort of the first thing I noticed is that even though it's slower. Um, the the sense of movement is greater because of that switch in time signature. Um, and having said that, you know, it starts out with this very pastoral feel, which maybe is not what you associate with compound. But um, the biggest difference I noticed when it started was that the woodwinds actually start without any brass, which is very different from the previous movement. Um, and, you know, you mentioned peaceful, and I do get that sense of pastoral peace sense. Then obviously, you know, they all come in and it's this big different kind of thing. Um, but I don't know, there's something about it. I, and, and maybe this is to me what is why I couldn't definitively say that this one is my favorite movement. So maybe I would actually say the third. Okay. Because this one feel, and I'm sure it was intentional, but this movement feels like two movements in one. Mm, yeah totally like there's two warring movements not that they don't go together they do but to me you know there's this there's this entrance here comes the king like theme that happens mm. and then mm. there's the more pastoral section that is constantly going back and forth between the two and not that i don't think they go together but they are vastly different mm -hmm. to the point mm -hmm. where i wonder why he put them together like that right um right. Yeah. And again, I, I am not the, the foremost expert in compositional technique, but yeah, yeah. The, I, I don't necessarily see the cohesion, like a, a, the stylistic choice between the two. I like the sound of the movement. I do enjoy how it sounds. I do enjoy the dynamic contrast between the two. The two. And there is this unison strings line throughout the movement that mm. I, it's wonderful. Like it, yeah. it's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's also this this one part later on in the piece where the strings have this long run of notes that they're playing, sort of like mezzo piano, and they're they're playing underneath. And these the flutes have just these like held high notes above them, just long sustained tones while they're playing this. It's very river like, and it's it's such a cool sound. But I don't know. It's just I, I have so much to say. I didn't even actually make any point there. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. So that's sort of the, the first things that came to mind when yeah. Um, yeah. when I had heard it. Um, but I, I should also mention something I do also really enjoy about this piece, this movement, is there's this one section, and I, sh I was trying to find the measure number, but then I lost it in the score, um, where the, the clarinet, flute, oboe, and bassoon have the same part, but it's, it's thrown to each of them. They each play it separately, and there's no one else playing there except them. Yeah. And... 
that I just think that was a, the the trade off is is a remarkable section, and oh it God. leads right into where they play together, um, at sort of at the same time, and it's like a overlapping kind of movement. Um, it's and it's brief; it's not that long. Uh, but I heard that, and I and I actually have in my notes in all caps. Yes, <laughs> I want to talk about a couple of points too. Which is yeah, my favorite moment in this piece, and it drives me crazy because you have the melody bum ba dum bum ba dum ba da, and then later, as as this kind of waffles away, we have bum ba da yum ba bum ba ba, and it's it's totally different than the beginning, yeah. and it gives me chills every freaking time because yeah, it's cool what variation. it does, it's so cool. And it, it's, 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 it's a totally different take on the melody. And it's so cool because like you, in the beginning, it's, it's, it's elegant and slow. And then the second section and that second section, it becomes more snooty. Bum, ba, ba, yum, yeah. ba, bum, ba, ba. And then, and then like you were saying, like something that we'll talk about when we get to nine is the fact that he is such and he's not a very good choral writer. He, he is a, <laughs> he's a terrible, like he's a terrible choral writer. He, he's so bad, but he is really good at choral writing for instruments. He, yeah. he he gets it, especially for woodwinds. He gets it so well. It's just yeah, it's, the it's... interweaving in between lines. There's a great arabesque about it where it just kind of like moves in between, and then it all just. Bum, bum, bum. And then, like you said, yeah, the moving and part. Then, and then that moving part is in the cello. And again, and we talk about this maybe hopefully when we get to nine in the last movement where the cello has the voice part and then the voice comes in after all of that. The cello is such a good freaking instrument it is so cool i do really like the cello and the cello and you can you can talk about this a little bit too which is the the reason why i love the cello is because the cello is a, a beautiful tenor voice it can be a bass voice but yeah but the, but the but the tenor voice in the cello is is the upper register and i feel like com really good composers utilize the upper register of the cello and it really happens to just fly and it, it has this sense of floating to it that i think that we sort of find in this movement and maybe that's what you're talking about which in we have this sort of like river-like nature and and then in that way we set up so perfectly for the sixth for the sixth symphony and that his again his pastoral symphony not about real life <laughs> about real life absolutely because i wrote a 20 page paper about it and because this whole freaking thing it's 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 one of the most beautiful sections of music and and people say oh i love hard hitting beethoven not until you've listened to the most sweetest music in the world by the most sweetest passionist man i've passionistic man i've ever i shouldn't say passion passion demand i've ever heard in my entire life this, <laughs> this ludwig von beethoven guy is so freaking good and i'll tell good you good old ludwig because he understands moments in music like all great composers do and i feel like when we talk about great composers on this show we talked about john williams we talked about joe hisaishi we talk about so many different kinds of really great composers but when it comes down to it the composers who were able to 
find a way to singularly get the audience to focus on what exactly they're doing at the right time and able to just see the broader picture, those are the greatest composers of all time because they're Mm -hmm. able to not just let us look at the picture, but they're able to just build in the background. And then for me, again, we talk about Joe Hisaishi, it comes forward at you because you're then you're understanding the emotions and stuff like that. Beethoven is in the same vein as, as a Haishi where you can listen to it and say, wow, this is so amazing. I'm listening to X, Y, and Z. And how does that all come together? We're listening to it. We're going blah, 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 blah. And then in one singular moment, we see, like Hunter was saying, we see all of this arabesqueness in the woodwinds and it comes together perfectly. And then you go, holy crap. What did I just listen to? Because it's so good and it's so organic and, and it melts into your into your brain. And very similar, Hunter, we'll talk about this when we get to the second movement of the Sixth Symphony. I'm so excited to talk about the Sixth Symphony with you because the Sixth Symphony for me is one of his, I, is I think, my favorite symphony throughout all of his canon. And, really? And I'll I don't tell think you I've why. ever listened to it all the way. The, the Sixth Symphony is my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because of... The programmatic nature, even though Beethoven's like, it's not programmatic. He's like, no, it wasn't. It is freaking programmatic. <laughs> oh, my God. I wrote a 20-page paper about it. So, God. So, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. Okay, so what what I was really trying to say in that moment is that there's so much turmoil, and yet it still comes resolved. And that's a moment for Beethoven to be like, oh. It's just, it, everything is fine. I'm going to be okay. Right. Life moves on. It's great. I want to move on to a next topic with you, which is um, there is so many different characters in this piece, especially in this movement, because yeah. the variations act in that way. And I want to throw it over to you because I've been talking way too long. So I want to throw it over to you. What do you think about the variations? Do you think they add to the new character or do they evolve, do the, blah, blah, blah. do they add to the evolving character that we see in this piece? Um, you know, I think that, because I had made a note, let me just look, where did I put it? Um, blah, 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 yeah, blah, 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 about, about the movement coming back. Um, yeah. Uh, or not the movement, about the, the motive coming back. Um, hmm. oh God, why can't I find it? Oh, so I think that like, we see, obviously he likes to, he likes to do variations and obviously of, of his, his motives. And I had actually made the note for my, for the first movement, mm-hmm. but I do think it still applies to the second one, oh, um, which is that definitely. when the, when the variations happen, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's obviously recognizable that it's a variation. Cause sometimes you could oh, make okay. a variation so changed that you might not initially recognize that it, it was a variation of whatever it was, but it is, it's not like he's not hiding it. Um, and I think what it does, depending on what the variation is, is that it changes like the the anticipation of where the song is going, um, you know, by moving it up a step or um, by, um, oh, what's the word where you you take a, it's not elongation, what's the, the, the compositional technique where it's like, let's say you have a, a pattern mm-hmm. of eighth notes. Augmentation. And then, augmentation, thank you. Yeah. Um, so he, he could augment you know, certain passages. And when you augment something, right, it draws it out, makes it um, some more sustained, might even increase the anticipation of it, just like mm-hmm. what raising a tone might do. Um, and in this case, you know, the, um, I 
I can't think of a specific instance from the movement off off the top of my head, but you know, thinking about if you let's well, say you take the clarinet part that that's playing or the oboe part and you give it to a different instrument, which he does, he does bounce the parts around. We were talking about that before mm-hmm. by providing a different timbre to play mm-hmm. the, um, the, the melody puts in a different context, right? Depending on, you know, if you all of a sudden give the clarinet melody to the French horns, totally different sound and actually did i have i had a note about the french horns but i don't think it was for this no no actually it's it's for the the next movement um but we'll get so i'll, I'll talk about the french horns later but that, that's sort of a babbling answer to your question that's awesome again you can you and i can have this conversation all day because this movement at the end of the day is one of the best and some of the greatest beautiful writing of beethoven that we yeah. can really go to and, and really find um I think what we can really say, and maybe like as we recap this movement, we really find these these moments of pure like bliss for Beethoven, mm-hmm. where we can go from one thing to the other. And honestly, we we I think I think Hunter, I, I think I talk about it when I talk about uh, Tchaikovsky a little bit, but I want to talk about it with Beethoven because prior to this symphony. I always felt like some of his transitions were a little truncated where they're, they're kind of like, meh, but this, that this movement gave me the solidarity and the therapy that I need to go on as, as a human being to say, we can go on and try to find a creative way to get to that. And that for me yeah. is what makes Beethoven go from excellent to goat. Yeah. <laughs> Greatest of all time. I'm not talking about the optimum fiber stuff, but I'm talking about greatest of all time being one of the greatest composers that we know in the canon. So I'm so happy to discuss that with you. And um, do you have any final thoughts about this movement? No, I think I think we hit them all. Okay, well, we're going to take a break. And as one would say... If you would like to support this podcast, please go to Spotify for podcasters. You can also search Music Speaks Podcast on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, and many, many more. Hunter, you've heard this joke before, but for those listeners out there who haven't heard this joke before, how do you make a band stand? Do tell, Sean. You just take their chairs away from them. Ba-dum. That's just it. That's it. Bum bum. That's all we need to do. So we'll take a break and don't go anywhere because more Beethoven is on its way. All right, and we are back with the second half of Beethoven's Fate Symphony, aka his Symphony Number no. Five. Ba 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 bum. Bum bum bum. All right. Anyway, um, so we move into the Scherzo, which is also Allegro. Um, and it's in three, four. Yay. Nice, for nice. more movement, um, for more movement, see compound meter. Um, you know, he, I noticed he seems to really like the, the eight bar opening sort of like, what would you call it? Not a motive, but like, uh, eight bar vehicle. Um, because a lot of his, uh, a lot of his movements seem to start with either a four or eight bar kind of like phrase. Um, and then my only real thing I'll say is that I love the French horn harmony after that hold at the beginning. 
Um, there's like, it's, I mean, it's just the, the French horns in this particular movement. I mean, I do like the French horns in general, but I think that in this movement, it's a really great showcase for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have so many cool harmonies throughout this whole piece. Oh my God. Um, and I think that this movement partially because of French horns, but I think just in general, the movement is a really great showcase for early score writers or like it shows things, you know, um, it's a good introduction for early score writers because there's a tonality and a, a feel that seems much more romantic era. Like we were talking about that. I had, I had this in my notes as we were doing it. Um, and we know that so many of the early screenwriters and even current screenwriters who study the history of, of film music, um, look to the romantic era for a lot of their inspiration because obviously the concept of emotion through music and um, the concept of leitmotif and all that kind of stuff that comes from the romantic era. Hmm. You know, we, we're saying that Beethoven was sort of the front runner for that moving into the era, even if he would claim yeah. or even if his contemporaries would claim he wasn't. Yeah. Um, I think that it's, I think it's safe to say that like we can see that peeking through here. And I imagine that a lot of early score writers probably looked back at the, the classical music that they knew and said to the, said in their minds, like, you know, what am I going to try to emulate here? What what works really speak to me? How can I do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it's a prime example, I think. There's everything about this movement to me happens to scream, like, early film, emotion on, you know, on stage, mm-hmm. um, for me, personally. Um, there was a, one other note I had before I, before I, I, uh, throw it over to you, but I'm trying to figure out, I had a note about the fr- other, uh, la, 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 I'm stuttering. Um, I had another note about the French horns that I'm trying to find about, which I cannot, I don't know why, but anyway, whatever. I'm sure we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Sure. Um, sure. it'll pop up when I'm not looking for it. So Sean, what do you, what do you feel about this movement? Yeah, I think you hit it really right on the head. And I think I'm ready to argue why this movement is primarily, um, romantic. A lot of people say when you write a classical symphony, you have to follow the order fast, slow, fast, slow, or sorry, fast, slow, fast, fast. I apologize. That (laughs) that's how, all classical symphonies go, that's the way, right? So This is the way. This is, I, I appreciate that. This is the way. Mandalorian. Um, I saw a kid with a Mandalorian t-shirt on while I was dancing to Mr. Fezziwig's ball, and I said, bro, give me a... Oh, yeah? Give me a piece of fun. Um, so what I was saying about the... What I think was so interesting about this movement is that there's all of this kinds of tumultuous nature and oh you said fast slow that's what you're talking about yes um, i'm sorry i'm sorry yeah you got me off track on that i'm yeah totally derailed the train it crashed (laughs) and burned in the ravine (laughs) what i i find fascinating about this is yeah yes it is a classically organized symphony but it is maniacally not it is a basic romantic symphony to its core you can say oh schubert you know, Schubert, the romantic composer, Schubert is way more classical than Beethoven because of his stereotype and the way that he mm-hmm. writes. I think that there is elements of Beethoven in Schubert, but 
for me anyway, what I find so interesting, and again, not straying away from what Beethoven's doing, um, because Beethoven in this movement uses, again, the timbre of the instruments to describe what's happening in the scene. And I think that for me is because Beethoven at heart loves the opera. Again, mm-hmm. and I've said this many times on the show, Beethoven is terrible at writing for, for, for singers. He's awful. Um, he's <laughs> written maybe a total of two or three operas that were terrible. And we don't talk about them very much because they're not really that. We, 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 they, we have Fidelio, right? And that, mm-hmm. that's one. But the other ones, not really that memorable because honestly the me- the melodies weren't really... And we don't even think about Fidelio being one of those like, oh my God, Fidelio! Like we talk about with Carmen or we talk about with other types of music. Um, or operas that were just blowing us away, like Porgy and Bess, right? Right. All of these operas, or we don't talk about them like they're Mozart operas, or we talk about, you know, you know, some Wagner. Wagner, Wagnerian operas. Thank you so much. I appreciate that because that is what's so interesting about all of this stuff. So, what I find so interesting about this movement, finally, because after me, like just talking and talking and talking forever. This, this movement, what I find so interesting about it is that there really, honestly, isn't much to say about this movement because he is so quiet about his third movements, but so precise about where he places everything. And like you were saying, the harmony in this is just loaded and different and honest and so focused. And so honestly, just ever so meaty and just, it's, it's just, it's so singular. You know what I mean? It's very, mm-hmm. it's very focused. And if I had to pick a movement that had the more classical tendencies, I think I would pick this one. But there are those romantic tendencies whenever you, you write for cello, because the cello has a, right? And I think there's a little bit of that, that whisper to it, right? And I think, like I was talking earlier about the beginning of the symphony, which is, you think about it, you think about it, you think about it. Beethoven is getting angry. He has this reflection moment. He is now questioning what is happening in his life. And this is a really good moment. Well, there is <laughs> Can't no, imagine why. There is a really good moment of ambiguity in this, in this piece where you can then say, oh, he's doing X, Y, and Z really well and, and playing it out. So I want to I throw it back over to you. Like, What makes this your favorite movement? I think it's it's mostly the it's mostly the tonality of it. I think the, the the harmonies that are written and the way that he orchestrates the the movement. I just really like the balance that it creates between the strings. The the one thing that I would say I find unusual about it, mm-hmm. I don't know that I love it, is there are these the sections where it's like only the basses are playing mm-hmm. for like four bars or five bars it's very odd like it does it almost doesn't feel like it fits in the middle of the piece again a classic like they break from what they're doing basses play everyone comes back in play 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 then break basses play right because it's a it's a building blocks moment where beethoven is layering and building up characters and i think that that to me is where some some you know studious professors like this is why this piece is classical again i disagree and, and this is why it's so frustrating because you have moments like Stephanie's like, sorry, not you have movements like these and, and not to take it away from what, why you like it. I think what's interesting about it for me no. is that you have this level of ambiguity and yet 
there are still strains of classical ways mm-hmm. of writing and that's what he does in this movement so sorry i mean i didn't mean to cut you off but continue please no no no. i i agree because i think like more than any of his other works we have like we've talked about this is a very classical style movement mm-hmm. and i'm not i'm sorry by the way, this is a very <laughs> romantic style movement, but the structure is classical. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't even know what I'm saying at this point. And it's yeah. not even that late. No, um, no. He 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 structures it from a from a structural standpoint, right? Harkens back to his classical roots, much as so. you know, at like the the Mozart's and the Haydn's. But yeah. obviously, he's throwing so much emotion, so much um, context, which is romantic, into right. it. Uh, and I'm a big romantic era fan. Like that's it's like my my favorite era of music. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And particularly like the the later half. So you know, like moving into the impressionistic era, which is obviously still about eighty years from you know like maybe well seventy years I'll say um, from where he is now. And maybe this can go into your discussion. The third movement is typically the hardest to write for, unless you're right. Bra- unless you're Brahms, when Brahms will just kind of do whatever he wants. But the third movement for me usually happens to be the dance movement. Yeah. It's been that way since the Baroque and Renaissance. That has always been the trope. That comes right. back. And I do and I do enjoy a good dance movement because yeah. I think it provides a little bit of, of, of life and it provides a little bit of um, yeah. Yeah. a break from quote unquote the the more structured style. Sure. Um sure. because the dance movement quote-unquote will always be more tied to i think the time period Mm. um because it's whatever um particular um and because we're not talking necessarily about physical like a dance like not you're gonna all of a sudden throw a tarantella into the song and be like hey you know know, it's not gonna be that but there are certain um musical dances that that fall into vogue and out of vogue with the time period yeah um definitely like you know there was one point where the polonaise was more more popular the waltz obviously during strauss's time was huge Mm. um so it's i think it also provides a little bit of temporal character to the piece i think so too and and not that we're really basing it on roots we really are because what's so focused about that is that we have x y and z happening in movements one and two and while that is great, it's always been because people say, "Oh, when do we talk about fast, slow, fast?" That's mm-hmm. we talk about that being a concerto format, right? Very classical right. format. But that was also the format for earlier symphonies, right? We have fast, slow, fast. Um, the fast movement actually ending up being the more jolto movement. So we have this affectation of dance we have this movement we can't always say exactly which kind of dance it is because it's in three you happen to always say oh maybe it's a jig or maybe it's a part of a waltz or something but those tendencies of those third movements happen to be from renaissance and baroque dances mm-hmm. so which i think that's no you're right yeah so um now with that being said um the you know, I mentioned I, I don't love every part of it. The the ending, I I wasn't sure. I didn't know there was no break between this particular ending and the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that threw me because I'm like I'm I'm like, did I miss the break? Did I miss it? So like I'm <laughs> I'm going back in the recording. I'm like, where is it? Where is it? Yeah. Um, but I think the trend. You know, we mentioned transitions. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that just out there. Okay. Um, because you're talking about that's what makes him the goat. Mm-hmm. Um. 
But one thing I, I just noticed in my notes before we move on to that is uh, there's the pizzicato section at the very, well, not at the very end, but like at the end of the movement mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where it's very delicate. The strings play pizzicato. And I very much get a sense of like Grieg. I don't know why. But that section, it has like a Grieg ethnic, or I suppose it would be the other way around, I guess, given the time, right? So the Grieg obviously was later. So maybe Grieg was trying to channel some of Beethoven, Mm -hmm. which Grieg, we know, very programmatic kind of composer. So as much as Beethoven would want to claim that like, he wasn't trying to be programmatic because it wasn't really what was happening at the time, it'd be hard to argue otherwise, because you're like, well, this clearly has more of a, um, a programmatic feel because they, uh, such a clear image comes across when you're when you're playing this yeah. or when you're listening to it that I think you'd hard it would be hard to say we're well, doing it just for you know music for music's sake. Yeah, I think it's it's subtle, but it's 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 fair too because it is. Know, it's subtle, but I think I personally think it's subtle, but it's powerful. I think what it is too, and I think you can talk about this a little bit as well, which is it being subtle that the pizzicato makes it fun. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is a part of the the anticipation that we're about to receive with this movement. And I'm so actually I'm actually there is. And I think I always talk about this and people are like, stop it, Sean, stop it, because it's so annoying. But there is this ambiguity to the beginning of this movement of the fourth movement. And I'm so glad mm-hmm. you brought it up because the fourth movement for me doesn't really start until you hear the end, the beginning of the third movement again. Mm-hmm. because the third movement comes back yes it does so really do we only have like you said we obviously have four movements but do we really because we don't well, that's the thing is right you could argue that it's really just three movements um with this sort of middle section in between until it recaps back to the, the first one so yeah. or to the, the first part of the, the third movement hmm. um mm-hmm. the initial theme yeah. that's what i was looking for the initial theme right um so I think you could make that argument. I mean, obviously it's it's denoted as four separate movements, but right, it flows in in the most fluid way, flows right into that final movement to the point where you would say, I didn't know it was a separate one. It's, and I think that was maybe what my gripe was with the second movement, which was that, you know, he he has good transitions, but the, the, the contrast between the two different um, themes that were playing in the second movement um, were not as fluid mm. one into the other as mm-hmm. this one is into the fourth one. Yeah. Now, having said that, like you, Sean, I'm a big fan of definitive endings, right? Yeah, you definitely. like to hear that resolution yeah. before the move on. But in this particular case, I think the fact that it flows rather than ends without ending mm is the big difference, right? Because we've talked about a couple of different movements where it's just like, and we're playing. <laughs> and you're like, it just dies. And yeah. you're like, where'd it go? Yeah, exactly. But in this case, if it moves right on oh, definitely. fluidly into the next one, which I no think is, is, is a big difference. No doubt. And what I find so interesting about that too, and you brought that up really well, which is there is no ending to the third movement. There isn't. Right. There is this tumultuous flotation device and i, I want to ask you maybe there is <laughs> flotation device because it's it feels like it's it's just bobbing for a really long time that's 
like does like i'm gonna ask you a question like do you think on maybe in in the in in the in the uh, maybe you have your score up and everyone else looking at home you have your possible score up do you perhaps think that on the pdf the page 42 on possibly the one two three four five maybe the fifth measure before the end of that of that line that is the end of the third movement because in a way it just it keeps kind of developing right and it never really changes until we have this five seven that leads us back to the key of c major i'm trying to think so if you can think if you can find the page 42 of that pdf and you see the sempre piano pianissimo Sempre piano. Where is? Pian- wait, am I looking at the wrong page? Pianissimo. Sempre pianissimo. Oh wait, hang on. Let me. I was on the wrong page. I was on page eleven. Well, I wouldn't even say it. It would be because we're not even in the key of of C at that point because the cello and the basses at that point have a low A flat, and we're not even in that part there. So we're, I'm on mm-hmm. I'm on page forty two. Do you see that yet or no? Oh, I see it down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what I was thinking was that that doesn't sound like that because it kind of if you can see in the in the in the cello and, and going on to the next page, it just keeps drooping and drooping and drooping, and it kind of yeah. then goes to that G right, and it never because we never really get a, a clear definitional end of of three. So we kind of understand that it it really doesn't. We have this pull and push of of what is it, what is it, and then maybe. For me, I mean, like, because we play through bum, 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 for a really long time until we return to three, bum, bum, and then actually echoed in the clarinets, too, which is actually pretty cool, by the way. And then that follows out, but we don't mean, I mean, I guess maybe the end of that ends in c major right i'm guessing but not but not really though does it i i don't really find that it does and then and then we because it's then but then it's sort of like a again sort of very similar so again we can go along and say this is not a figure of of beautiful classical this is this is romantic music that is being developed from classical music and and so ever so much developed that there is all this tremulous and and again what i find is that i i use this word way too much when i talk about beethoven and really great music but this music is so glorious and so triumphant in a way where beethoven's like you know what i have my deafness i've done it i'm going to be okay and everything is going to be just fine you know and i think that that is is such a turning point for him as a character and as as a as a human being it's such a powerful mm-hmm. message to see and you can see all the women weeping in the in the pews. Like, <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful! Oh. Bum, or they were bum, terrified. Bum, 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 bum. He's like, he's there. He has made it. I mean, almost for me, if it wasn't for the deafness, for me, Hunter, this would almost feel like a celebration of Beethoven, like Beethoven mm-hmm. finally finding his voice after being buried by Haydn and Mozart and all of his contemporaries who he felt he was better than. And I, ag- I agree with Beethoven that he is better than those people. Mozart definitely... <laughs> he would agree too. And I think he would agree too. I think 
there are levels of Mozart that I think are are beautiful, but can never be as good as Beethoven. And I think that that is the level of of you know understanding that Beethoven is just someone who is just like. And I think that we talk about it when we talk about Nine as well. I mean, he is so you know full of life and just someone who really enjoys the the humanistic part of life and that's such it's so Mm -hmm. you see that in his music and it's so it's so valuable sorry i want to i also think that i also think that given who he was what we know about him personally maybe that was the way he had to express it because he was not a pleasant man and nobody liked him um so he might have had those feelings but struggled in his lifetime between everything he was going, you know, he had a very tumultuous home life because Mm. the whole issue with his nephew and, you know, his, his very odd love life. Um, Mm, and then the the losing his life is, is not his life. He eventually lost his life. Um, no losing his, uh, hearing. All of that sort of came together to just make it a very difficult existence. So if he did have such a reverence for life, I think the only way he could express it and how much he was going to miss living it to its fullest hmm. without his hearing was through the music. Definitely. You know what I mean? So it's just I, that some people just, they can't express it in words. They have to express it through music because they, they, or, and for some people it's painting for some people it's sculpture. You know, everyone has their, their niche. And obviously he was very good at his um, being who he was. Right. So, yeah. That's sort of one of the things I take away from the entire symphony as a whole, which is that that is how he had to tell the world what he was thinking. He, he couldn't just make a statement and say, you know, I'm losing my hearing. I am very sad. You know, it's like, no, it's not what he was going to say. Right. Beautiful. Well said, my friend. Thank you. I tried. So, I mean, unless you have any other, um, after that very wonderful, awkward silence, um, I have, uh, unless you have anything else to say about the particular movement, the only other thing I had, which was that um, the, the whole last movement is very broad stroked. And despite that, and despite the intensity of the end, mm-hmm. everything is really light. Definitely. Like the timpani is the only thing that I think is, is really heavy, but even with all of the act, all of the accentuations and all of the, the gravitas that goes with the last movement, it's still very, very light, which I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. shows that he wasn't necessarily in a depression. Like I, he, they say he was, but I think like you said, that, that living was still there. He was not like, I'm going to throw myself down a well. He was sad for sure for sure 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 and and struggling to cope but he was not i wouldn't say like suicidal no so no i don't think so. uh, i think that he did find a light at the end of the tunnel he just knew he had to get himself through it first and you see that through his music yeah i'm not going to say anymore because you basically took all my points but oh well so, sorry about that fair is fair. <laughs> um so with that then i guess for those of you listening, thank you very much for listening about Beethoven 5 with us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually Beethoven 6 will be on its way. Ooh. Sean, any closing remarks? I'm so excited to talk about Beethoven 6 because we're really about to get into the nitty gritty about his his great programmatic writing. Mm-hmm. And I think you're mm-hmm. really about to see that, especially with the sounds of the people and the townsfolk and the birds, you know. And 
we're about to really hear some great, great writing and something I think you might have never seen before. And I think I was going to mention this when we do this pod, but it was so rudimentary. We have four movements in the last five. Now for six, we're going to have five movements, which is really freaking cool. That's different. It's, it's totally different. And I'm so excited to see what you think about this piece, because again, it is my absolute favorite. I can give you the paper that I wrote about it if you'd like. And it was one of the greatest things I've ever experienced in my life. Just listening to this piece. It's just, it's so passion and love Mm -hmm. and beauty. And and there's, there's an admiration that Beethoven feels when he, and and something that we'll talk about too, which is the aspect of him being alone and really with his inner thoughts and the inner beauty that he really understands and what it's like to just skip around and be with people and, and just look at the woods and see different kinds of animals and stuff like that. Um, we have different kinds of birds in one movement. And that for me is like so freaking cool. I, that to me is like the coolest thing on the planet. Cause you get to hear different kinds of birds and especially different kinds of flutes playing different kinds of things. And that is like, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention the last thing, which is within this movement, we get trombones which we have never yeah. seen in our orchestral canon until about now. And then from then on, we start to see more trombones used in orchestral repertoire. So Beethoven begins the use of trombones in this piece and then, then picks it up later within the other types of movements. Hunter, I'm so excited for you to listen to the thunderstorm movement in, in this because I'm sure maybe you've seen it when you saw Fantasia. Oh, that's, uh, yes, I, I know which yeah. one you're talking about, right? Because it's the one with the centaurs and all them. Right? Yeah. It's that it's this whole thing. And, and I'm so excited because there's the dance movement, which is in the second movement. Then we talk about the bird scene, and then we talk about the thunder. And then the fifth being such a gratifying, grounding presence of great orchestral music. And I'm just like, leave me alone i will talk about beethoven i'll talk about musicals i i, I get it, i get it. we'll talk about musicals too okay but um again stick for the that'll next, be next time that'll be next time so talk, also very excited i also want to ask you i mean because i've been elaborating on beethoven how excited are you to talk about sondheim next time It'd be very exciting yeah. it's one of his masterworks yeah any any thought you want to you want to jump into any like like what makes it such a cool thing or should they just listen for the next one i mean i I think you should listen in next time i'll just preface it with it's sweeney todd if you didn't know and you'll hear it in our outro in a second yeah which is really exciting so all right thanks hunter and i'll i'll talk to you soon see ciao i'm sean kunis and I'm Hunter Sagana, and next time we're going to talk about what is considered Stephen Sondheim's masterwork, his uh, his 1980s masterpiece. No, actually, it was not 1980s. I think it was 1979. Um, Sweeney Todd. So until then, remember to keep listening to what you love. <laughs>